The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be here with everyone. So most of you know me, I'm Mark Nunberg, one of the guiding teachers at Common Ground Meditation Center. And today I'm at the retreat center here in western Wisconsin. Shelley Graff and I are finishing up our annual Labor Day retreat. This this year was eight days. We began last Sunday, and we're going to end tomorrow midday. So I get to give the talk from this location today, and we're continuing looking at the 16 steps, the 16 Meditation Instructions that the Buddha Gives in the Anapanasati Sutta. I began this series of talks maybe about a month ago. And all these talks are recorded and put on dharmaseed.org, a wonderful website where you can listen to my talks and many other wonderful uh, insight meditation teachers. And they're also all recorded and the videos are up on our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and search for Common Ground Meditation Center and you'll see all of our talks, including the Sunday morning talks there. And the uh, instructions and some other supporting articles are uh, posted in the chat. And for those of you who aren't seeing the chat, maybe you're on the YouTube live stream or you're here in person or listening later, but you can always find those documents on the website under our calendar, just look for the Sunday morning weekly practice group and you'll see the link to the document with the supporting articles, including the 16 steps there that you can, it might be nice if you're gonna follow along to print that up, just two pages, and it'll help you uh, in memorizing and understanding this whole map And even though, you know, by definition, we learn a map by kind of going through it linearly, step by step. But really the map comes online collectively in a unified way. It isn't something we go through step by step, even though when we're learning it, like we've been doing these last few weeks and will continue for a number of weeks, it is good to go through it in a systematic way. Yeah, just to respect uh, those of us here at the retreat center and online that have been doing this retreat, we've been using a different set of instructions, this more open awareness practice, aware of whatever's predominant, and learning to relate to whatever's predominant with wisdom, to see that it's a natural process, that it's just something being known, and just to be relaxed moment by moment in that way. But this set of 16 instructions, it's really um, a particular map that reveals this thread of refined pleasure. And it helps us understand the whole of the spiritual path. Because having that sense, like even in hindsight, as we live our life and try to live a spiritual life, then in hindsight we might remember, oh yeah, I learned that map 
And now I'm under, now I can understand what's going on, what's sort of up in my life. It's really making sense. This is what's going on because we have that map. And that can build a lot of confidence for us. Like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not lost in the wilderness. My practice is unfolding in this ancient, well-worn way. Some of you know that our, you know, our graphic for the Kamagam Meditation Center is uh, the Buddha's footsteps. And we have this statement we have in all of our printed materials and on our website, practicing together in the footsteps of the Buddha. Right? So we're aligning with this natural process of awakening, which is really characterized by this deepening refinement of pleasure, of inner pleasure. And so all the way as we're learning, we're getting to know each step of the way a particular refined pleasure in more and more of a refined direction. We're learning to recognize it, we're learning to appreciate it, and we're learning to keep that pleasure in mind. So that's why I said at the end of the guided sit, like maybe our homework for the next few weeks, can we keep that respect for, that connection with, that embodied well-being, can we keep that in mind? Can we practice not forgetting it as we go about the day? Where is it now? And the thing is, you know, we even feel this in terms of location that we come up, we're in our mind. We think of the mind up where the brain is behind the eyeballs, right? And in that sort of sense, it's like we leave the body behind. And the, and the question is, the body is in a way a metaphor for the world, for our life. So when we leave the body behind, we're, we're really undertaking a practice of disconnection. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, how's that working for us? All the little and big ways we habitually practice being disconnected, whenever we're absorbed and a thought about this or that, doesn't matter what the thought is, the thought is not reality. The content, whatever picture the thought creates, it's not the present moment. It's not the reality of the present moment. We're disconnected. Now there are some thoughts, like maybe some of these thoughts that I'm thinking and saying right now, that point us to the embodied reality, wisdom, awareness, connecting, opening with the way it is, and being interested in the well-being of the knowing mind not in conflict with the bodily experience. And what we feel then you know, the body may still have its aches and pains. They're not necessarily going to go away because we're cultivating the path, right? If we have a splinter in the finger, that's going to feel like a splinter in the finger. But 
the mind, the knowing mind, can be aware of embodiment, including the splinter in the finger, and not in conflict with it, not separating from it, not hating it. Still can pull the splinter out or do whatever can be done to fix things or help things. But in the meantime, it's not practicing conflict. It's practicing this loving, easeful well-being, being with the body with well-being, free from conflict. And the supporting step, you might remember, hopefully you do, because we're just working with the first set of four instructions. The third instruction is, the Buddha asks us to train ourselves while we're breathing in for just that simple duration, whatever that is, 20 seconds, let's say, 15 seconds to breathe in. For that duration, can we be open to the entirety of the body? Can we meet it? Can we allow it to be the totality of the body? And we're retraining the mind because the mind might want to go to where there's pain in the body and then its opinion about that pain in the body and it's a strategy to fix that pain in the body. But that's not what the Buddha is asking us to train in. Right? It's experiencing the whole, the whole body, the totality of the body. And that's a specific insight that we can feel the body like. To be interested in the totality of the body, the wisdom has to learn how to go beyond what I like and I don't like in the body, the pleasure and the pain in the body, and its disorienting, distorting effects. Right? So there's already got to be some wisdom of equanimity. No, no, no. All of it. Together. No one part of the body, one sensation highlighted over another. Not going after the pleasant bits or neurotically obsessing about the unpleasant bits in the body. But the inclusivity. So I'm saying that because it can be easy to wrongly think, oh, I got that already. I know how to be with the whole body. But it's really a particular skill to be sensing the totality of the body. And yet, it might be that certain sensations, because of the way the mind is conditioned, the habit is for them to be like in the forefront of attention. But then we just, the part of the skill is learning to look right through that particular intention, like knee pain, or whatever it might be for you, and see the whole picture of the body, feel in to the experience of embodiment. Yes. Yes, it's like this. And that's what sets up that well-being. It's like the mind is finally learning to show up, right? We've mostly, you know, unfortunately, have learned to live at a distance from our bodies and therefore our lives. 
And so we have this chronic, pervasive sense of being disconnected. And it can manifest as depression or anxiety or hollowness and incompleteness and unworthiness. But the roots of so many of those emotional, painful states is that we've forgotten that we can be with embodiment in this whole inclusive way. And it's healing. It leads to a very real, not contrived sense of well-being. And the Buddha's really inviting us to learn how to bathe in that good feeling, to let that good feeling of bodily well-being, bodily calm, bodily tranquility, to let it have its effect on the heart and mind and body. And the effect is a sense of safety. And the sort of more obvious effect when it's strong is this body does not want to move. This body energetically isn't in need of anything else right now. There may still be this pain or that pain, but they've fallen into the background because the sense of well-being is really in the foreground. And remember, the well-being hasn't changed, literally changed the physical conditions of the body. It might still be cold or too hot or old or you drank too much coffee or whatever the sort of more gross level of conditions, circumstances of the body, they're they're not necessarily going to have changed. But what's profoundly changed is the mind that's opening, knowing, being with the body, receiving the body, the sensitive heart receiving the body. That way of relating is very wholesome, very pure, very healing, loving, tender, unwavering, persistent. It's as if the deepest wisdom in the heart is saying, right now, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going anywhere. In the same way you might, someone might comfort a young, a youngster that's in a hard place, difficult place, you know, and they'd hold them, assuming the child wanted to be held, hold them, and they'd say something like, I'm here, I'm not going to go anywhere until you're ready. I'm not afraid of what you're going through. I can really be here. And the body responds with well-being. I wanted to be held. I wanted this kind of attention for a long time. Thank you. <laughs> right? And, it, and it's a visceral feeling. That's why we're, we're talking about a physical well-being. It's felt energetically, physically, as a kind of physical, um, almost like we're physically held. The well-being is holding 
energetically throughout the body. Now, you know, as we learn the map, the other 16 steps, we're going to move on. But that doesn't mean in your home practice, this place might be an important theme for years. Or you might cycle back to it. And the thing is, without some access to this physical well-being, It, we have our whole life and our whole spiritual practice has a kind of shaky foundation. You know, we might be in some exalted state, prist- excuse me, pristine stillness, deep sense of the ephemeral nature, the impersonal nature, but then some old earthy, feeling will creep in and say, what about me? (laughs) You know that there's a famous book in the whole world of healing trauma. Some of you maybe have read this book. It's quite, as far as I know, uh, respected. I've looked at it a little bit. I haven't read the whole thing. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. And it's like, uh, there's no way to become a vibrant healthy, deeply wise, deeply engaged, helpful human being without getting interested in how the mind is relating to our body, this body. Not the idea of the body, but the aliveness of the body. And that's really what the third and fourth instructions from the set of 16 instructions are all about. All the way through the the path of awakening, through the whole spiritual life, it's awakening to this refined pleasure. And each pleasure that we awaken to supports a letting go. So what are we letting go to when the more and more we're able to, able to access, to feel into the pleasure of bodily tranquility, bodily well-being, we let go of thinking, wrongly thinking, that embodiment is a problem. You know, so much of our restlessness in life, moving, <laughs> You know, moving our body just literally and moving where we live and moving our jobs and moving, changing relationships. And, you know, so much of our restlessness is not knowing how to uncover a sense of bodily well-being. Things get so clear, like what's important, what's not actually that important. It gets so clear when we have some of that bodily well-being. All of a sudden, things that used to seem important aren't important. Oh, maybe I don't need to do that thing. Maybe I don't need to become that person. doesn't mean we stop caring about the world and suffering. It just means we get clear about what's really important and what's ultimately not that important. 
part of learning this map about this refinement of pleasure, uncovering, getting to know, letting these, these uh, sort of refinement of pleasure, letting these different qualities of inner pleasure, spiritual pleasure, have their effect on the heart, is it makes the, as we understand that, even before we experience, you know, the full range of the spiritual path, just understanding it, how much it makes sense, and some of it, it makes sense because we've experienced it, some of it is still hypothetical, but it makes sense intellectually or logically. We can trust, and that trust allows for that real power. I called it during the guided meditation a soft power. Put emphasis on the word power, just because it's soft. Soft in the sense of it being pervasive. The soft power of persistence. Because we have to really stick to it. The whole process of awakening. We have to keep bringing it into the forefront. Sometimes when we're lucky, just the suffering in our lives, the difficulty in our lives will bring spiritual life into the forefront of our attention. But the real disadvantage of having relative comfort and relative privilege in our lives is that we can become forgetful and we become content and satisfied with what is ultimately not worthy of contentment and satisfaction. It sets up a betrayal. Like we become content with our health, thinking that it's ours for the keeping. Or we become content with our relationships, assuming that they're never going to change. Or worldly conditions, circumstances. And then we're always betrayed or surprised when things ultimately change. Because none of that is worthy, a worthy refuge for us. Doesn't mean we're dismissive of having a nice place to live or doing what we can to maintain in our good health or establishing wholesome relationships. Clearly, those worldly pleasures are really useful and we should be grateful for whatever we are able to, uh, to kind of connect with in our lives. And our heart should break when we notice ourselves and others when we don't have those worldly pleasures. They're not available to us. We should try to support those people. But then when we have enough, we want to hear about and study this path And the first thing, the first part of the path that really deepens our confidence that there's a lot there to learn that I haven't learned is touching into this inner well-being and starting with this earthy well-being, this bodily well-being. I can, I often mention this, I can distinctly remember a time, a particular set in my good friend's bedroom, we were sharing a house together in Berkeley, California. I was in grad school, or yeah, I think I was probably still in grad school at the time. And we had been really good friends in college and lived together 
for a while after college and then ended up in grad school at the same time in Berkeley and both had discovered meditation, had been really gotten into meditation and then we ended up living together and we were really, I felt, just good supports for each other in our practice. And we'd sit in the morning and then we'd sit before we'd have dinner in the evening together. And uh, this is in the mid-80s probably now, early 80s, mid-80s. And, um, and I remember a particular sit where my mind just dropped in. I was probably doing breath meditation at the time. But there was just that really deeply pleasant feeling of embodied tranquility. And that sense of the body not wanting to move and get up and have dinner together. <laughs> as nice as dinner would be. It's just like, oh. And the initial response the mind has when we taste that inner pleasure is, I didn't know this much good feeling is available. And it, the, the thing about that good feeling is it doesn't appear to the mind to be related to external conditions. It's like when we're really in touch with that embodied well-being that spreads, pervades the whole body, the general sense is that it's just there for the taking. It's just a matter of the mind, body learning the way back, learning how to invite it back into the forefront of experience. Because there's really nothing ever in the way of the mind healing its relationship with the body. Nobody is going to say that it's easy, but there's nothing ultimately in the way, like even right now, for this heart-mind to be relating to this body in a healing, loving, intimate way that's conducive of this bodily well-being and the spreading and deepening of that bodily well-being. So I invite you all day long, today, for as many days, till we really build the confidence and the skill to have confidence that that well-being is available, to be interested in it, and even when it's just really faint, really seemingly in the background, to keep keeping it in mind. That's not a tight, it won't work if it's tight. Interest, being interested in this, doesn't have to be tight. It's really the interest of love. It's like our compassion. It's how we, in a very earthy way, care for this life. As if we were to say to ourselves, I don't know much, I don't know much, but I do know that I can be relating to this body in a healing, loving, kind, intimate, forgiving, pervasive 
way, a non-forgetful way. I know that much. And I know that that's good in the in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. It's never not good. It's never not useful. It's always helpful. Even when we're living a busy life and we're feels like we're running, doing three or four things at once, one of those three or four things should be keeping bodily well-being in mind. Right? It's like uh, these things that we just have to keep caring for, like we have to brush our teeth, we have to make our food, we have to pee and poop, we have to keep in mind bodily well-being. It's not like we have the option. We just think we have the option to not keep it in mind, but that's where the that title of that book, The Body Keeps the Score. The price that we're paying lives on, embedded in the body. And it will present its bill. I was looking for that quote. Couldn't remember who said it. There's this great quote from somebody's book. I thought it was Annie Lamott, but I couldn't find it there. But anyway, it's something like you know, those difficulties, those difficult experiences that one way or another got laid down in the body, buried in the body, because we didn't really know how to be with the embodied experience at the time. So it was suppressed, it was repressed, it was buried, and the body keeps the score. And so... It's not even about removing all of those physical, emotional, energetic knots. It's about love. It's about not being afraid. About being in relationship with everything. It's not even our own pain that's buried there. It's all of our collective pain, all the legacies of pain and injustice and horror and terror that we all carry. And the, the beginning, like when we just going back, reviewing the first four steps before we begin to move on to the joy in the heart, step number five, but the first four, you know, we establish what it is to be present. And the first step in terms of this strategic map of 16 steps that the Buddha gives us is, honey, it's as if the Buddha is saying to to us, honey, you have to let go of your obsession of attending to all your experience. You just can't be responsible for everything you're thinking, everything you're seeing, everything you're hearing, everything you're touching, So to learn how to let go of the diversity of your present moment experience, you're going to train yourself while you're breathing in just to know that exclusive experience, the physicality of breathing out, uh, breathing in, and then the physicality of breathing out. And to do that, to be really intimate with that one thing, you're going to have to learn to let go 
of everything else and let it fall into the background or the periphery of your attention. And you're going to learn how to keep that one thing in mind through the duration of breathing in, through the duration of breathing out. This is the first step in learning how to connect with reality. Because as long as we're in the habit of feeling responsible to everything, we're not connected to anything. Does that make sense? Because the system is just too superficial, too pushed around. It's not ever really landing in any real way. Now we're going to move later to more inclusive attention. But we just don't have the inner resources yet. So we end up being disconnected when we feel responsible for the totality of our experience. So then train, really learn how to put it down by being attentive to that one thing. The breath is just one training mechanism. There are other ways to learn how to be with just one thing until you're so with that one aspect of your experience, your present moment experience, that you begin to feel the pleasure of seclusion. So this is the first insight. We're having insight that the heart can let go of the diversity of experience. And we feel the, the fruit of that insight is we feel the pleasure of seclusion. That simplicity that just this is being known feels good. So it's more correct to say that what we're paying attention to there is breathing in plus integrated right in to the experience of breathing in is the pleasure of that simplicity. And then we're attending to the physicality of breathing out and the pleasure, the mental pleasure, heartfelt pleasure of that seclusion. Then the next pleasure is the pleasure of inclusivity, right? Where we're learning that right there with the breath is the whole body. So we're looking like the pleasure of not needing an exclusive attention on the breath. That's a little artificial. It's a really useful training, but it's a little artificial to say yes to this and not to anything else. So we let that expand, open up, to more inclusive awareness, and we feel the pleasure of that opening up, that inclusiveness. It's a subtle pleasure because we've let go of the dependence on the exclusive attention to the meditation object of just the breath. And then we have the pleasure that I've been talking about of that embodied well-being. And that's the fourth Instruction and it completes this first set of four instructions. And the Buddha organizes the 16, which remember you can get in the document. He organizes the 16 in four sets of four, called the tetrads. And the first set of four is really about this healing of body and mind and the really grounding, opening to that pleasure of seclusion, for that inclusive awareness of body and the embodied calm, the embodied well-being, bodily well-being, as we're breathing in and as we're breathing out.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.